0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: When I started on this journey, I truly wanted to make an impact in the world. I was not looking for fame. I was not looking for money. I was not looking for power, you know, and I think when we go towards those things versus the actual heart of, you know, the joy of doing something, right. And people always say like, if you really love what you do, you aren't working a day in your life. I really truly believe that. And I think I got, you know, not, I'm not going to say lucky. I think I just really, since I was younger, I followed my heart and my passion. And honestly, that is really what I want other people to do, because I think the more you are enlightened in that way and can sense a feeling that is almost greater than any of these things of like money and fame and all of that, you just, you, you beat to a different drumbeat, right? And here's what I will say is that when you have something like that, that gives you so much joy and centers you and feels so connected to your purpose, when you, you know, get a raise or get a house, those things feel good, but the worth of them doesn't compare
0: Kyle, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking Thanks. the time to join us.
1: Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
0: It is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called Life Paths, all of which we will get into. But before we get into the book, given some of what I know about your story, I wanted to start by asking you what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career and where you've ended up?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, social group. Let's see. I was a mix, I think, because I was smart because I had to be because I had Indian parents who made sure I got <laughs> straight A's. So I was obviously in all like the AP nerdy classes. I'm not sure if that was like a social group or an academic group, but I felt I was a part of that. But then I was also like captain of my varsity cheerleading squad and a part of that crew as well. So I think I really always dovetailed a little bit of this nerdy side and then also this cheerleader football, uh, group that I was also a part of, which was strange because they both were very different. Um, but I think this actually goes back to so much of what I think has always been a part of my life where I just feel like I never fit in and I never really was one or the other. I was always multiple things.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of funny, right? We go through you know, adolescence trying to fit in and then you get into the real world where people reward you for standing out. And (laughs) part of the reason that I wanted to start with that question in particular is because of the fact that I knew that you were a cheerleader. And one of the things that really struck me was this story that you tell about being at a high school football game and then changing into Indian (laughs) clothing, making sure nobody saw you and This line in particular struck me. You said, back then, I didn't know that each of these identities could bolster the other if I allowed them to coexist. I didn't realize that one side didn't take away from the other. I was afraid to let the strands overlap. But with time and experience, I've learned that my strength lies in the unique combination of strands that make up no one but me. Everyone's identity is like a rope that's braided together. When our separate strands are woven into one, we become far more beautifully complex and stronger with strands reinforcing one another's strength and unity. Why do you think that most of us don't have that realization at a young age? Because I can tell you there were moments when I was definitely ashamed of the fact that I was Indian, and one in particular comes to mind, and I've talked about this before on the show. I grew up in Texas for most of junior high up until ninth grade, from like third through ninth grade. And there was a year I didn't tell my parents about open house, and it was mainly because I was embarrassed by my dad's accent.
1: Right, right. I understand that. I I can totally relate to the feeling. And I think that's really the answer is that we are scared, right? And I think as much as obviously I've learned to embrace it, it started actually by feeling like I was embarrassed and I was getting made fun of for being Indian, whether it was people telling me I smelled or that my dancing was funny and booing me off the stage. I think it made me feel that I had to hide these things to be accepted because I didn't have the confidence to be myself. and. I think that is really the key is to find ways to embrace an environment where you could truly be all the colors of who you are and you can really build that confidence. And for me, I found that place in dance. Right. And I think for everyone, you need to find whatever environment that allows you to be all the threads, right, that you are. So the beauty of who you are really gets to shine. But I think when we're younger, we're really impressionable. And I think we have to be careful. You know, obviously, you know, I have a child now too, Just what we say around them and what we, how we box people into different categories. Because as you just said, I think the most exceptional things and exceptional people in the world are the ones who truly do stand out.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny you brought up having kids because I think that to your point, I think that it's so much more challenging when we're young and we're trying to figure out who we are and we're so impressionable. And I think if there's one period of my life that I'll happily never go back to, it's being a teenager because, you know, your parents are the most horrible people in the world and you, you think you know everything. And at the same time, you're completely insecure um, which I guess, you know, kind of strange to ask somebody who has a two-year-old, how do they think about this? But, you know, when you think about the fact that, you know, at some point your son is going to be a teenager and go through all of this, um, do you think it's one of those things that kids just have to figure out on their own and go through, or is there any way to, you know, avoid the the sort of damage that gets done by adolescents?
1: I mean, I don't know. You can maybe ask me in 15 years and hopefully I have some <laughs> answers, but you know, I, I really just want him to be confident. You know, I think that's really the basis to so much of our happiness and fulfillment and our joy is allowing him, you know, allowing our kids to be who they are versus telling them who to be. And I do think, you know, a lot of us went through many periods of our life, whether it was our parents, whether it was external forces of society, of people just telling us who to be and how to be.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's particularly prevalent in, you know, the culture that you and I grew up in. Yes.
1: Yes. 100%.
0: I mean, you say so in the book, you say, when I graduated from MIT in 2005, all of my friends were going to banking or consulting. So I followed suit and applied to those types of jobs as well. When I landed a coveted position that would make my parents proud and look good on my resume, I didn't give it much thought beyond that. The only reason (laughs) I didn't end up in one of those positions is because my grades were shit. But I was pretty much in the same situation. As a Berkeley undergrad, all of my friends were either headed to banking, consulting, medicine, or Google, or law school. And they didn't just go to those places. They basically went to the best ones. Um, and so how do you overcome that sort of parental conditioning? Because I think it's changing with our generation, but you know, in our parents' generation, it was very, very dominant. And at the same time, I realized at a certain point that that advice made sense given the context in which our parents grew up.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's part of, you know, what I think is so important for us to realize is in any expectations that other people have for us, we need to understand where they are coming from, right? And they grew up in really, you know, horrible conditions, if you really think about it, in the sense of how much they had to sacrifice to come here, right? They came here with no one. They didn't have money. They had to really fend for every dollar, right? And they would never want us to ever feel like that. Right. So I think it came from a sense of protection. And I think one of the ways I really had to overcome that was one by sharing all my like successes with them. Right. So of course I had checked every box for them that they had told me to. Um, and I was going down that path and obviously that made them feel more confident in my ability to succeed in life. But I also had to do that in terms of my own things. Right. So as I was you know, building my dance company on the side of my other job, like letting them come and witness the success of that, the joy of that, the, the fact that I was able to get people like Mira Nair, who I'm sure you know, who is, you know, an unbelievable, incredible film director to come and say, wow, like the work you guys do is exquisite, you know, and have that be said to my parents was something that made them start questioning wait, like you are really good at what you do. And they always knew I was a good dancer too, but it was always that side hobby thing. It was never something that I was going to pursue. They kind of just started, I think, believing in me more to the point where, when I finally got to the point where I wanted to quit my job, it became an easier discussion, but it was six years after I had graduated college
0: yeah well, I think for me it was for me getting a book deal was kind of that moment where my parents were like, "Oh, you're not just screwing around on the internet. you're actually doing something that's leading somewhere, but you know, at the same time, I honestly couldn't help but just feel this tremendous sense of insecurity. Uh, that entire time, like I would go to my, uh, parents, friends parties, and I'm just like, I don't want to talk about what I do because this just doesn't sound like a real job. And I'm going to have to answer very Uh, uncomfortable questions because there's no external marker of success. So I wonder, you know, prior to sort of class pass becoming the success that it is, and, and your parents starting to actually see traction, how did you maintain your sanity during that period?
1: I think it was hard. I think it was, um, you know, two things I would say. One, like my parents didn't know, obviously, at this time too, startups were not something that were, was talked about, right? It was not um, a profession that I think more people did, right? It was definitely, I was one of the only people they probably knew who was building a startup. And that was probably shocking to them. And especially because it took me three years to even get you know, my product working, I think there were times they were like, what are you doing? Is everything okay? Um, and they were also, like I said, pressuring me to get married because that's really what they thought was progress in life. Right. And they didn't know if, okay, well, if your company doesn't work, then maybe at least if you're married, you'll have like a way to move forward in life. Right. Like that was sort of their, their safety net, right. They always wanted me to have a safety net. Um, Mm. and I think that was a really tough thing, but you know, the other thing I really did and, um, this is sort of like a mentality I've had to train my mind into is how do I wake up with a positive thought every day? So I had this practice that I'd wake up every morning and I would go and find a quote and then I would post it on Facebook Um, at the time. I mean, Instagram wasn't even a thing at that time. And I remember like I would post that quote and it would sort of come back to me every day through people commenting on it or liking it. And I just remember having this practice of trying to stay positive being a really important thing for my mind, right? Obviously, you can meditate, you can do whatever you need to. But to me, that just like having this moment where I could stop thinking about everyone else's thoughts and sort of go into, I'm going to go change the world today meant a lot to me. And I think I just hung on to that. And I knew that I was meant to do something great. I really did. I really felt it. I knew I was solving something big and I didn't want these distractions to really hold me back. So I just didn't, I stopped listening at some point and started going with really where the universe was taking me, where my purpose was taking me. And a lot of other stuff just really fell off the plate, you know, and it just fell off and I just didn't
2: care.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think for me it was basically looking at the people that I surrounded myself with, and I, I realized there were certain times where, I'm like, wow, if I go hang out with people like my literary agent, my editors, all these people, it's like, oh, these people see me as normal. To my family, I'm just the weirdo who spends time on the internet, basically doing nothing but writing and recording conversations <laughs> with strangers.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I think that's very um, telling. I, I talk about this too in the book how when I was at Bain and I had all my business friends, you know, and I, and I love them too. And I got along with them as well. But then I had this like whole other world in my dance world where people were editors and artists and, you know, full-time dancers. And I, I remember when I was with them, I felt so alive. Like I didn't feel I, they, they just saw the magic in me too. And I think it's so important that we like you said, find those communities. And also if certain communities aren't serving you, it is okay to not spend time with them, right? It is on us to sort of make those decisions. And I know we feel obliged to doing it, but our life is our own to live, right? We don't need to be, we don't need to be spending time with people who truly like make us feel worse every day. What is the point of that?
0: Yeah, I think I finally came to the realization. I was like, OK, yeah, these people are going to criticize. They're going to judge. But none of them are going to live with the consequences of any of the decisions I make. It's like you know, this auntie once told me, she's "like you need to get married on time. I was like, on time for who? I'm like, All you'll right. be dead at some point. I'm like, I'm right. the one who's going to have to live with this person. So speaking of which, I think that that makes a perfect segue to a part of this conversation. There's no way we're going to get out of this talk without having. And that is Indian parental expectations for marriage which I think are far worse for girls than they are for guys. But you say something in the book about this. You say, my mother's focus on my dating life stemmed from a place of love and concern, but she was inadvertently putting the idea in my head that I was incomplete and failing to move forward in life if I wasn't on the path to getting married. And I remember right when you know we sent the you know exchange emails the first time, I was like, hey, I just got to that part. It's like, I think I have this conversation <laughs> with my parents at least once a week. Um, But I think that is so much worse for women. And, you know, I wonder to mothers in particular listening to this, what would you say to them about the fact that they're reinforcing this message of making their daughters feel incomplete? Because I just can't help but think how what kind of choices would people make if they feel they're incomplete if this part of their life isn't checked off?
1: Yeah, I mean, the number one thing I would say is that, you know, your daughter is 100% as equal as your son, right? And there is no difference, right? And I think that is something that has sadly been drilled into our society in the wrong way for way too long. I mean, it is something that obviously is still an issue, but I think we really need to understand how in this day and age, especially with the potential and opportunities, you have to almost help your daughter really, truly break through society's expectations. And I think for me, I've had incredible, you know, people in my life, whether it was my dance teacher and my mom. Like, of course, my mom was definitely someone who was forcing me, but she also, you know, showed me a path in when I was younger. She worked, you know, she she did everything she could, she took care of us, but she still worked, you know. And I think having that that sense of having ambitious women and surrounding our daughters with ambitious women is really the key because I, and I say this in my book and I I really feel it, my biggest regret in my twenties. And yeah, like I, I did some incredible things. It's even hard for me, you know, sometimes to say that because when I went through it, I was drilled in my head that I was doing the wrong thing because I was single. Right. And how terrible is that, that my company was sitting here you know, hitting records and setting milestones as a female founder. And in the back of my head, I felt like I was somehow still doing something wrong. Right. And it's funny because I think a lot of times, you know, you, you question things in your life, but to have to question something so, you know, personal and let that define you. It is something that as a rhetoric, I think, you know, obviously mothers need to change. I think a lot of times, like even mothers need to raise their sons, to have more respect also for the women in their lives.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because I remember right after my sister's wedding, I did all these interviews with my family members just to document them and to hear their stories and hear, you know, kind of how people had met, you know, why they'd married each other. And my mom's was somehow delayed and I ended up doing it after the wedding. And I remember sitting with her and i knew because i was recording this conversation it might be like a one chance i'd get into this conversation without her you know blowing up or both of us getting mad and i asked her straight up i was like are you unhappy that i'm not married and she said no she was like my concern is that i'm worried about what's going to happen to you when we're not around anymore Uh, and i'm like uh wow okay so this was basically coming from the best of intentions just horribly expressed
1: Exactly. I think that's exactly right. It comes from a sense of them not wanting us to be alone, right? Or not, or being in a place where we don't have money or something like that. And yeah. like you said, it comes from a really great place. They only know how to express it this way because that's how they were also raised, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's about recognizing that and allowing them to have their place to say it, but also not take it to heart, right? That's what we really need to do is say, okay, mom, thank you. Great. I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I did, right? I literally would be like, thanks mom for the advice. I love you. Peace. <laughs> you know, because I didn't want to get into it, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, so I I knew if I were the single older brother at my sister's wedding, there's no way I was going to get out of this entire wedding without this conversation. I was like, you know what? I'm like, I'm going to put an end to this right during the speech. So I literally opened my speech by putting up a picture of my phone number on the screen. I was like, for all of you who want to know when I'm getting married, you can text profiles, pictures, and all other relevant information to this number. Now let's get to actually why we're here. And so I got to avoid any conversations. Anytime some auntie came up to me, I was like, you've been given your marching orders, get to work and then we can talk.
1: Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I, everyone faces it. Right. And it is, it is one of those things where I think for my parents, too, and I talk about this, too. My mom was like, I'm going to retire the day you and your sister are married.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I remember what that. Is
1: that. What is like, that? I actually, in my head, I, I mean, going back to what you just said about, it was almost like my marriage would be her freedom and i don't even know where we built that construct in in either of our you know agreements in life but it's weird that she had that and obviously at some point she was like i'm gonna quit because you're like no nah, we're getting married <laughs> um and so she did you know but it was funny because i'm like i love that in a way i was like so are you really working so you can pay for a wedding because come on like that's ridiculous like why are you even torturing yourself with that <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, speaking of weddings, so I, you know, just from having done my research, I know that Yurga Gujarati and your husband is Punjabi, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. And so my sister, so we're South Indian, and my brother-in-law is Bengali. And so I've always wondered when people, you know, even of, who come together from different parts of India, how do you integrate and retain the aspects of each other's culture when you're particularly when you're raising kids? Because I keep wondering, you know, about my sister and her husband, like, is this kid going to speak Bengali or is this kid going to speak Telugu, like, or are they going to speak neither? Because I feel like for me, if I don't marry an Indian girl, the first thing to go is going to be language.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, for all of us, we need to be very, very thoughtful on what our culture, religion, whatever it is means to us individually before we can even think about putting it onto our our children, right? And one of the things me and my husband are very cognizant of is, you know, my mom's super religious. His dad's super. My, my husband's also Sikh, and he wears a turban, and so does my, so does everyone in my husband's family. So, you know, there's even like there's even another structure to that. And I think, you know, his dad's also super into Sikhism, which is beautiful. And I want to take parts of that and put them onto my my child, but I also have to be careful on how much I do that without making them feel like one is good and one is bad, right? You have mm. to be very thoughtful in making sure it's a, it's, it's really about what makes Nick happy who's my husband and me happy, right? Like I love the volley, right? My husband didn't really celebrate that growing up so much, but I'm like, Hey, like I really love it. So every year we're gonna have to do a big thing for the valley, and he's like, great, you know. And then at the same time, he's like, I want to raise Zayn as Sardar, and I'm like, great, like that's important to you. We're going to do it, right? So I think it's really about agreeing on what it is, and then also I think it's like I said, keeping the grandparents in check at times. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure that's a whole <laughs> other battle in and of itself. But uh, what about language? I because I've always wondered this. So I, I have a my my best friend from college is Bengali, and her husband is Gujarati, and I'm like. What language do you speak to your kids and, you know, do you just end up with these very like trilingual kids as a result? Because you just basically speak to them in both languages because my sister's Bengali is apparently really bad. My brother-in-law's Telugu is shit too. So.
1: Uh. So I would say, I'd like, we speak Gujarati to him. My husband doesn't really speak that much Punjabi, so I don't think he's going to... It's really about what they're around. And my, my parents are here a lot at the house, so he's exposed to Gujarati more. Um, he also has, like, you know, he's got caretakers who speak Spanish and stuff, too. So he's kind of just, like, he's right now just learning everything. I think as he gets older, like, we're going to expose him to both. And I think it's really going to be about like what we speak, but we speak majority English in the house. So I think yeah. the only reason we all learned Gujarati in the house is because my parents' most familiar tongue was it was Gujarati, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the same same with us. And the funny thing is now my parents basically speak to us in Telugu and we just reply in English, even though we yeah, understand exactly. everything they're exactly. saying.
1: <laughs> only when I go to India, do I like really yeah. speaking Gujarati. <laughs> exactly
0: totally totally well let's get into you know what you talk about as as you know false signals of success because i think that that really struck me as one of the most important parts of the book and something that I think it's really hard to wrap your head around because you say that as a society, we tend to conflate the idea of success with achievement. When somebody accomplishes a specific goal or reaches a new milestone in their life or career, we view that as success. You get a raise of success, a new job of success, launch a company, marriage, kids, a new house. And I think that what I wonder is for somebody who's not in your position to understand that I think any one of us can understand that intellectually, but to actually internalize that when people are not in the same position that you're in, how do they do that?
1: So I think for me, when I started on this journey, I truly wanted to make an impact in the world. I was not looking for fame. I was not looking for money. I was not looking for power, you know, and I think what happens, and by the way, all those things can be can, can be received by doing what we love. I think when we go towards those things versus the actual heart of, you know, the joy of doing something, right. And people always say like, if you really love what you do, you aren't working a day in your life. I really truly believe that. And I think I got, you know, not, I'm not going to say lucky. I think I just really, since I was younger, I followed my heart and my passion. And honestly, that is really what I want other people to do, because I think the more you are enlightened in that way and can sense a feeling that is almost greater than any of these things of like money and fame and all of that, you just, you, you beat to a different drumbeat, right? And here's what I will say is that when you have something like that, that gives you so much joy and centers you and feels so connected to your purpose, when you, you know, get a raise or get a house, those things feel good, but the worth of them doesn't compare to the feeling of feeling fulfilled, right? Because most of those things like, okay, yeah, like I got a raise, like those things kind of last for a day and like, and disappear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, they don't sustain, right? And the journey of fulfillment to me and like, for me, you know, once again, I, I really found that in dance is this feeling of giving to others, being in service of other people. That's when you truly can't compare your life to a lot of these other these other milestones, right? And then, you know, I talk about it more specifically when it came to starting ClassPass and I did a lot of these things wrong. So I think, you know, you're absolutely correct in saying it's obviously easier said in hindsight. I'm obviously giving this this advice because if there are entrepreneurs who are doing sort of the traditional thing out there, which is, you know, okay, let me go get as many followers as I can. Raise as much money, get as much press. And by the way, these are, these things aren't great or are, are wrong. They're just not exactly the only thing that matters. And for me, those ended up being sort of false signals that I was succeeding. And I forgot to actually work on the most important thing, which was getting people to class, right? Which was right. the mission. And, and I say that wholeheartedly because I think a lot of times, especially because entrepreneurship is a bit glorified now, people just want to be entrepreneurs. They want to start companies because mm-hmm. they think they'll get rich and all of that. And, And yes, like all of that intention is so good. Just make sure you are solving something for other people in the world and let that be your guiding light. And I had that guiding light and I forgot it at times and I had to be reminded. And so my advice to everyone is make sure you anchor yourself there. And when you get lost by all this, you know, society stuff, just go back to that because I'm telling you the answer is in that guiding light.
0: Yeah, well, I very distinctly remember um, White Combinator did this, uh, you know, free class at Stanford that they made available as a podcast. And at the very end, Sam Altman talks about press, and he was like, "The yeah, press is basically just a distraction." Uh, and he said, "You know, be careful that you don't get distracted by your press." And so I'm always very cognizant of that, cognizant of that, because like I remember, you know, somebody wrote an article about us in Forbes as one of the best podcasts of 2021, and you know, I shared it on Facebook. People are like, "Congratulations, my dad!" Is like, "Oh, this is huge." I was like, "Dad, this is meaning." I'm like, it's just a mention in a media outlet. I'm like, it doesn't actually make any difference. You know, it basically is what you would call a false signal of success.
1: Right. It's a perception. But look, like sometimes those things are great. And like, I think if you have a product that's working, which you obviously do and people enjoy your podcast, um, I think that's what's great. I think people forget that that's the important thing is to keep working on the product, not keep working on the press, right? At the end of the day. So, so back to whatever, you know, he was saying, he's absolutely right is don't get caught up in getting more press, get, get caught up on having an awesome product that's going to garner the press.
0: Mhm, yeah absolutely, yeah, I mean, even you know when I think about something like writing a book, I always think that the moment you hold the book in your hand, it almost feels empty because you know what it represents is so much bigger than what it actually is, like the finished product, and every writer I've ever talked to says this,' so like, yeah, compared to the blood, sweat, and tears that went into writing this thing, holding it in your hand almost feels empty,
1: yeah, I could see that i I definitely can see that I mean it's your whole life in one um. It is. It's been, I mean, this whole process of writing this book has been, you know, got an up and down journey, but I, you know, I'm proud of this book. Like, I'm really proud of where it's come to, and I feel like people will really be able to grow from it. And I think it's also helped me, especially with where I am in my life right now. Reading my own book has almost been therapeutic for, for myself because I think so much change has happened in my life in the last few years.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about one more thing related to sort of press and external measures and sort of, you know, the the world of attention all around us, you know, Instagram followers, social media. How have you managed not to get influenced or distracted by this? Because I feel like this is just a big issue for so many people in the world we live in today. They confuse attention with accomplishment, and they pursue attention often at the cost of accomplishment as a result. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting cycle we are in today. I mean, it always really comes down to product. And I have this uh, sort of, I guess, my own vision for myself, which is to create timeless things. Um, and something that's timeless is not about attention, right? It's about lasting. And I think about that with my dance work. I consider, I think about that with my tech products, with this book. And I think people really need to think about things that last instead of thinking about things that will be a part of a 24 hour news cycle. Mm Um, right. And I think the way you go back to that is by once again, going back to what everything I've been talking about in this is what is at the heart of, you and your why and your the deep part of what's guiding you and if you don't have that yeah you are going to crave these once again false signals of success and you're going to think that all those things make you happy and let me tell you something they are very fleeting right that is not a rich life by any means they they will come and they will disappear and you will be felt you will be left feeling empty right and i think you know i always go back with classpass like i had a chance to affect millions of people's lives. Like I know, and the thing I am most grateful for more than any press or valuation or anything for the company is we've helped people book over a hundred million reservations and that's a hundred million hours of people's lives. Like nothing, no post on Instagram, right? Like can compare to the way that makes me feel. And the fact that people will come up to me on a daily basis and say, oh my God, I went and worked out today and I felt so good. That is giving, right? And that comes back to you so much more than someone just liking a post. So I think people really have to think about building stuff that's timeless because like, who knows, like Instagram's even not timeless, right? Like Snapchat's not timeless. TikTok's not timeless. Like we used to all be on Facebook and it's not there anymore, right? Or I guess it is, but you know, we're like kind of over it. Or I guess it's like our parents are on it now. And so Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where you have to remember timeless things are our products, right? And are things that truly add value through huge, to human society at any point.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why I will often choose no-name guests at the cost of our metrics because they have good stories.
1: Exactly right. Care about what the intention is because that will always go further than, of course, like getting just like you said, the likes and the and the metrics.
0: Mm-hmm. So one. The thing I'm very curious to ask you about, you know, both of us grew up, you know, in relatively privileged circumstances. I mean, we both were pretty much guaranteed to be able to go to college, uh, you know, and both of us were pretty much conditioned to go to the best damn school we got into in the position that you're in now. How do you think about making sure that you raise kids who are aware of the fact that they are growing up with a tremendous amount of privilege and that that is not normal?
1: Um, So look, I think, yes, like we grew up with privilege. That being said, I also grew up in times where I didn't know I could shop, right? Or I couldn't buy new clothes. Like I think I've had, I know the value of a dollar and I think that's really the most important thing to teach your kids is the value of that dollar, right? Of what it takes. And um, I mean, obviously I haven't crossed that bridge with my son yet, but that being said, like I think it really comes down to exposing him to all the different experiences in the world. I I think someone once told me, like, you know, there was a son they had, and they would send him every summer to, to like, helping others, right, in other countries and exposing them to new experiences that make them really worldly knowledgeable, right? Like, I think back to my childhood and why I think people didn't understand me, and it's because people just weren't knowledgeable, right? And I think it really comes down to having the knowledge of it and then the empathy towards all of it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk specifically about, you know, sort of taking the leap to take a risk. Uh, There was something that really struck me that you said. And the reason this struck me in particular is it's because I've seen this you know, come back in our survey data over and over and over again, we've asked our readers, they always say, I don't know what to do next. And you say, Mm -hmm. no one pursues their calling already knowing everything they need to know or possessing all the necessary skills. But by taking action and hitting dead ends, by learning from failures and trying again, we learn what skills and knowledge we're missing and we can close that gap. And I always described it as basically standing in two different spots in the same room. When you stand in a different spot, you see things you can't see before. But What is it that keeps people trapped there? And how do they get out of that trap?
1: They get comfortable and they're scared of failing, right? The fear of failure holds people back so much. It's, oh, if I move and I fail, but we don't really think about what that means. Okay, it's fine. You go and fail. So what is the worst that's going to happen? I almost feel like when you fail, and actually for me, I think about this all the time. I became an entrepreneur the day I really failed. Because up until then, I had really nothing to lose, right? And I didn't even think about it. And once I failed, I was like, oh, I really need to go and work on this. And I almost think the feeling of failing is so important for us to wake up and start seeing the world, like you just said, in a different way. And we should be running towards it, not against it. And we should be trying as many things as possible, making hard decisions, iterating, pivoting on ourselves until we feel we are more in line with the course we're supposed to be taking.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of failures, uh, what have been sort of the rock bottom, you know, uh, all his lost moments for you in this journey? Have there been any?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, um, I think earlier on, things felt more rocky. Uh, I think as your company scales, and I think as, you know, Classless is moving so fast, the peaks and valleys started to smooth out, if that makes sense, even though they were bigger. Peaks mm-hmm. and valleys, if that makes sense to me, they felt more, they just felt more milder because I had been used to it at that point. So whenever people ask me this question, I always do go back to more of the like earliest days because that's when I wasn't, I wasn't used to it. Right. So the roller coaster was sort of just beginning. <laughs> yeah. um, And I think that's a really important way to think about it is I've almost, you know, and I say this to my friends, like even when like the pandemic hit, like, I just think our company was like, okay, like, let's go do this because we'd been here before, you know, and I think you, you stay resilient because you are used to that. Right. And so I think going back to the earliest days, I mean, I talk about some of these stories in the book, like when the, when the product wasn't working, it was so hard, right? Because I had this vision and this mission and I had people working and I had money and, I wasn't figuring anything out. Like I was literally like living and dreaming on a bunch of ideas, right. And dreams that weren't necessarily coming to fruition. And that was just a really hard time to keep everyone motivated to keep, you know, myself motivated. And, you know, I think I, I talk about this moment where I got maced and mugged sitting, Mm -hmm. um, at a coffee shop and, you know, I lived, like you said, a pretty like protected life and nothing bad had ever really happened to me in my life. And I remember that happened in the midst of like our first product getting close to fail failing and I shut down inside and that was sort- totally the wrong move, but I just really shut down. And I remember I stopped like feeling anything. I just kind of was going through the day-to-day motion And I remember it took like a big, it took some, a few things. Like I had to start working out. It took me talking to certain advisors and sort of coming to terms with how I felt, right? Because we tend to run away from our emotion, um, to really get out of that. And then I started really embracing my emotion and being like, no, I really want to build this. I truly believe in what I'm doing. I really want to motivate my team. And once I came back to that emotion and that feeling and motivation, I was able to Remotivate the team around me, and that's when we started actually building the second product, which was our passport product for ClassPass, which then you know helped us build the actual product, which was ClassPass. But um, I think we forget sometimes that you know we need to feel, you know. And I think I almost did the wrong thing by by trying to shut it all off because that's sort of what I was told to do, and I felt like was the professional thing to do, but that mm-hmm. was the wrong move.
0: Oh, um, I can relate. Uh, yeah. I think that, well, I think that it's kind of interesting. You, you, you talk about vulner, vulnerability in the book, and this is something that I've always kind of wrestled with is, you know, when you're in the public eye, your actions have serious implications. Like everything that you say and do is so much more magnified. And I learned that firsthand from the reality show situation. It was like, okay, if I, I remember calling a cousin who was a media attorney and he was like, look, he was like, anybody can make you look like a jackass in editing. Your job is to give them no ammo to do that with. Right. But uh I, I had a mentor who told me he said, none of your problems are gonna go away when a company becomes successful successful. He's like, they magnify. He said, What changes mm-hmm. is your capacity to handle them? And I remember thinking, I was like, yeah, I'm like, I'm guessing Mark Zuckerberg still has plenty of problems. They're probably just a much bigger magnitude now than they were before.
1: Right. And every step in the process helps you get the skills and experience to do the next step. Right. And I actually think like, this is actually a big part of what I talk about in the book with the goal setting process I do yeah. is what I really want people to do is break down things into small steps that they can execute on because we learn so much about ourselves by doing the small thing first and building the confidence to do the next bigger thing. Right. And, you know, as big as class pass has, has, you know, gotten in its life, like I truly believe I learned everything by putting on a small dance show in New York City in, you know, 2008 probably, right? Which was so, it's so small for like a hundred people. That's what I was able to do. But that was sort of like this first huge thing in my life, right? That I did that I was able to succeed at, which then helped me say, okay, let me do a bigger show. Okay, wait, that went well. Let me go and start a company, right? It was this journey to do something bigger. And like you said, so as things were magnifying and scaling, my capacity to do bigger things in my life expanded. And I think sometimes people want to get to the big thing, but they have to actually start with the small steps to be able to get there to not just because, you know, oh, everyone's saying you need to start small to get there. It's really because it's a part of the learning and growing process to even be able to handle the big things. I think when, when companies get really big overnight, a lot of times they cannot handle it. Right. And they end up like disappearing or like hitting major catastrophes because like they've lost their why, right? They don't have the systems in place. They don't know how to actually maneuver themselves. And, you know, ClassPass has been around for over a decade and, you know, we, we've been able to maneuver so many different things because we started with so much of those ups and downs and learning through the big, like the big steps, small steps, and then, and taking in what we needed to. So our capacity kept growing. And I feel like that as a human too.
0: Yeah. Well, let's actually talk about this goal setting method at the end. Cause I remember going through it and looking at it. I was like, Oh, some things in my life are kind of out of whack. (laughs) Uh, I I came to the realization. I was like, okay, you know what? Like I don't do anything but work, which is kind of a problem. Uh, It's like working against snowboarding. I even remember telling my dad the other day, I was like, I have no life. I'm like, how can I date anybody right now? I've got to like make sure this thing succeeds. I'm like, dating is not a priority. He's like, seriously, man? Like, yes. Um, But I think that what I appreciated about the methodology that you offered was it was really a tool for awareness more than anything else for me. Because, I mean, as you might imagine, I've, you know, after a thousand plus interviews, I've heard every goal setting method imaginable. But um, I liked the fact that it was something that created so much awareness. Can you just explain it in a bit more detail?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a process that takes from like an hour to hour and a half. So we can't get through um, the whole thing right now, but I'm happy to talk about what the methodology um, really is. And the biggest thing, and I love that way you just even set this up, but you know, the first three steps are all about that awareness for yourself, because I truly believe before you get to the practical side of setting the goals and the big achievements you want you need to really be able to reflect and think about what you want out of life, right? And so the first step, we go through a reflection period where we think about, you know, what has this last year really been? What were the words and themes that were prevalent? We need to anchor ourselves in you know, what we are and who we are. And then I think the next part of it, what we do is we go into dreaming phase and we go into a phase where we're doing the same thing we would have done in the reflection phase, but a year from now. So we really end up anchoring ourselves on the themes that we really want in our coming year and that we we really want to strive towards. So these aren't necessarily achievements like we just talked about, right? These are really about words. How do I want to feel in a year? Um, And then the next big step, which is really, I think sometimes the the most revelatory for people who do um, the exercise is I I really help them focus in, right? Because we cannot make, we can't make change in all areas of our lives um, at the same time. And so I, this whole process for me is always a quarterly process. So I focus in on only the next three months and I go through a time diagnostic of, you know, where am I spending all my time and how is that time serving these dream words in my life? And then I go and focus in on, okay, I'm going to set goals in home. I'm going to set goals in like in dance and I'm going to set goals in my book. Right. And I get very specific about the areas of my life I'm going to work on. And then only do I start setting the goals. Right. So we've gone through a process where we've actually gone on to really focus in on the areas of our life. We're going to set goals against because they are really the ones that sort of need the work that we need to do. And so, like you said, a lot of that is about intention um, And then the goal setting part. And, you know, this is all in the book. I mean, I'm really good at setting goals. And the reason I have had to become is because that's been my life. Like, I think it's all about execution. Right. Ideas are a dime a dozen. Like you they can. Dreams are always there. But really what gets gets stuff done is writing them down and crossing things off. Right. And mm-hmm. this doesn't mean to mean you need to have a to do list. It's about having goals that serve you and your dreams. And for me, like if I write something down and if I tell you I'm going to do it, you can guarantee I will do it. Like I have like, a, like a, a contract with myself that I will do the things that I say yes to. And I mm-hmm. think that's the other important thing you have to really learn with yourself because I think it's about you believing in yourself, right? And being able to say, okay, I set out these 10 to 15 goals and I'm going to do them and I'm excited to do them. And you will feel so great on the other side of them. You just have to really build that discipline with yourself to actually get these things done.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I remember when my editor at Penguin said, can you finish a 45,000 word manuscript in six months? And I looked at it, I was like, yeah, I can do that. I read a thousand words a day, not realizing that writing a book is a very different beast. But because I made that commitment, I was like, yeah, hell or high water, I'm going to deliver this thing in six months.
1: That's amazing. And yeah, it's definitely a process.
0: So. One thing that also struck me, and the reason I wanted to ask about this is because it was a theme that I heard from a lot of our readers. And, you know, I I did one-on-one interviews with my listeners to find out what was going on in their lives. And this came in particular for parents that I had spoke to. And you say that guilt often keeps us from focusing on our own priorities. This is especially true for women who often feel pressured to nurture and put the goals of others first. Women can often end up living their lives for someone else because they feel guilty prioritizing their own dreams. And I particularly saw this with women and ones who had young children, like yourself, when they would work on anything creative or anything that you know didn't seem like it was, you know, going uh, you know, to basically add to the bottom line or you know add to their economic stability. They felt guilty. It was like I'm prioritizing something that's not as important as my kids. Right. What do you say to them to get them past that feeling of not, you know, feeling guilty about the fact that they're prioritizing something that's important to them?
1: So first, and I think this is something I've had to do, is you really need to get the people in your life on board with your dreams and purpose, right? So, you know, and I've had to sit down with my husband, he'll be like, wait, or even my mom, right? She'll be like, wait, you have another dance class today? Like, why are you not playing with your son? And I'm like, no, like I have rehearsal or whatever it might be. It's about being very, very clear on your own priorities and sharing those with the people around you, right? They can't support your life unless you are very clear about what your own priorities are. And I think you know, in that process, I have learned to really be clear about what I want to accomplish every single day, and knowing that those things are things I really enjoy. I think when I feel bad, it's usually because I am doing something I feel forced to. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, I would totally rather be with my kid right now than being forced to do to do this you know meeting or this you know, out like social thing that I really don't want to be doing, right? And so I think it really comes down to if you are doing the things you love, then you're not going to feel that guilt, right? And you have to obviously find a way to communicate that to the people around you because you need to set yourself up to actually being able to do that um, in your life. But it really comes down to you knowing what you're, what you want to say yes to, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I want to finish with two final questions. Uh, I mean, you've alluded to the fact that, you know, dance is this huge part of your life. And if like dance really, honestly, was kind of the underlying motivation for starting class pass. And I remember even early on uh, in the book, you described this experience of, you know, the feeling you got from dancing that just seems like it just brought you to life and puts you into sort of a flow state almost. And for me, that yeah. had always been writing, the, you know, I played an instrument in high school. And I feel like so many people have these moments when they're young, and then they're just that, they're moments that become an afterthought. Why do you think that is? And how do they reconnect with that part of themselves?
1: such a beautiful question. And honestly, like this is the anchor of the book. This is sort of the anchor of PlasPas. It is really, we should never stop. We are never too old to have that flow state, that playful set in our lives. You know, I think what happens is as we get older, society gives us responsibilities, which of course are important. I by no means think that, you know, we shouldn't be doing the things that are um, expected of us in the sense of responsibilities. But that being said, I think we need to um, really think about in our lives what we truly, what truly lights us up, right? And why should we stop playing when we get older, right? I never wanted to stop dancing and I felt odd about it. Like I remember being at Bain and, Inviting my whole office to my dance shows, thinking I was really weird and strange for doing that. But I remember when they would see me light up on stage and see me in my element, they actually had a deeper respect for me the day after, right? Because they were like, wow, like she's really talented at what she does. And I think we have to hang on to these things. We need to. 100% prioritize these things in our lives because without them we're going to just be a part of the grind of society, right? And lose our life like you just said that's that's what I talked about. I found it when I was really young and I really believe like my entire purpose in life has been how do I make sure other people feel that same life I so lucky luckily found when I was younger.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think when people are truly living their unique calling, it is 100% mistakable, and the universe will guide you through it.
0: Hmm. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Uh, this has been really, really cool. Where can thank people you find so out? Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely, my pleasure. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, uh, the book, and everything else that you're up to?
1: Yep, they can go to lifepassbook.com, and I'm usually on Instagram at, at pile. That's P-A-Y-A-L
0: wow, you actually got that as an Instagram handle?
1: Yeah, I did. Can you believe that? I know, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I remember I asked them because I, I had Pyle teach you I think. And I was like, I, I kind of want to switch it to at Pyle. And I was surprised because like, Pile is the most common Indian name, <laughs> right, for a girl. Um, and I got Pile.
0: Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast.
2: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?